Hello again and welcome to this week's Leap of Faith, a week where the four Archbishops of Ireland have called a meeting with the Taoiseach seeking to allow people to return to Mass under Level 3 restrictions. They've expressed concern about the impact the restrictions are having on their church. In Rome, all events have been overshadowed by further stories of financial transactions involving the disgraced Cardinal Giovanni Angelo Becciu. Shortly we'll talk with the biographer to Pope Francis Austin Ivory about the third encyclical for Telly Tutti. Joining us also will be a former crime boss, Stephen Gillen, whose journey of transformation and redemption is told in his book The Monkey Puzzle Tree. But first, the distinguished historian, educator and human rights activist Dr Margaret McCartan OP has died aged 91. A Dominican nun, her research into and writing of what has become known as women's history were pioneering. To discuss her life and the importance of her work, historian Dr Sinead McCool joins us now. Sinead, welcome to the programme. Dr. McCartan was known to different people by different names, Sister Ben, Peg, or Dr. Margaret McCartan. How did you know her? I knew her as Dr. Margaret McCartan. I knew her um, from the period of 1990 onwards, so really in the last you know, three decades of her life. But as you've said, she lived a long life of nine decades of nearly of activism from the time that she was a child. And what is really incredible about this life, this life really well lived, was that she did nearly experience the whole of the foundation of the state. So she's a, a child of the post-independence period. She's a you know someone who had a father who was in the IRA in the 1st Battalion, who was a clerk in the Republican Doyles, whose mother was on a ship returning from England when the um, members of the delegation were coming back, having signed the treaty. And uh, she was a cousin of the Lord Mayor of Cork, who was killed a uh, hundred years ago, um, her father's first cousin. And really her life was always tied up with historical events. And she was somebody who was making history, experiencing history and, and, and writing history. And so she's really a remarkable person. They often talk about um, Maud Gan in the context of someone who lived, you know, you only see one of these people once 100 years. And I think of that with uh, Dr. McCartan. What's really interesting when you start looking back over her life is there's an authenticity and an ethos that she had. Where did that come from? Well, I suppose when we have to acknowledge immediately that we were that we have a very, very bright, intelligent woman that in 1949, when she went to UCC to study English and history, was given a gold medal as the most outstanding student of that year. She had won an award. It was the Peel Memorial Award. And she was also a student activist alongside with being a great student. And she was a great scholar, as I've already described. But what was really quite incredible, and again, for people um, who may not be familiar with her, believe it or not, Tolkien was her supervisor in her, uh, in, um, in her thesis. And he invited Margaret to study with him in Oxford and study medieval literature. But she chose not to go. She chose to instead to undertake a H-dip in Cork. And then her life changed completely, much to the surprise of her own family, in that in 1950, she decided that she was going to enter a convent. Um, and of, of course, you know, she, her, her religion was her belief system. And she was drawn to the Dominicans because of their own belief in education, in justice and ecology. So she had those, all of those interests. 
Now, you mentioned that, uh, you know, many people would have remembered her from her lectures in UCD, uh, where she lectured on history. But to get to that particular position, she also had to be given permission to flourish a little bit. And that seems to have actually come from the Dominican order. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, when, when she went in, so she had she had done her, her, her teaching degree, obviously, before. So when she, she entered, she became a teacher in Sign Hill. And she sought permission to study in UCD, and she went in to to, to study under um, Dudley Edwards in um, early modern Irish history. And again, we're back to this monster woman who had grown up in Kerry, and she starts to sort of, you know, um, explore this area and looked at the work of a Dominican, um, Dominico Daly. And what's interesting about that um, that work on on Daniel O'Daly, it was about. Um, diplomacy, the Irish in Europe, and it gave her um, access to um, archives both in Lisbon and in Rome. And she was in Rome at this this critical period in the run up to the you know the Second Vatican Council. And then when she returned back, she ended up teaching then in UCD, entering into the university to be one of the lecturers at a thirty year career. And she she joined in nineteen sixty four. And of course, she's there at the moment of the Gentle Revolution again, advocating for students. And when it came to uh, uh, you know the the commission into what had gone on, uh, she was of course. Uh, taken to task over the fact that she was photographed standing on a table uh, addressing the students and um, never never um, uh, never fearful of of any institution that she was attached to always very sure of where she was and what her stance was so when we look at the woman who ended up in the 1980s going on to be the first principal of the Ballyfermid Senior College, um, uh, who, who instigates programs in this midst of unemployment, where people are, are searching for employment, mostly outside the country. Um, she talks about um, how it's so important that people make their own employment and their and and so she she encourages the the animation course and so here we have this thing where we have hollywood and we have this woman who's the principal who's got linking four oscars and margaret mccurtain and that's the wonder of the woman and then we look in the earlier period where she's working with hannah sheehy skeffington's son who's a senator working towards the abolition of um, corporal punishment. So you find her in the midst of all of these campaigns during these critical periods in time. What's particularly fascinating when you read through her, her writings is that the presence of joy and the absence of fear and a sense of bravery. And she put that to the test, actually, at an early part in her career when she stood up to Archbishop John Charles McQuaid. Yes, well, when she went, went to teach in uh, University College Dublin, the, what was the standard at the time following on from you know, years of um, the bishops, you know, being um, in a position of power. Um, it was that her lecture notes would be submitted to John Charles McQuaid for him to vet them before she would deliver her, her lecture to the students. And she refused and she was supported in this by her superior. Sinead, I'm thinking of the people who have been in lecture halls, who have read her work. Her voice is going to be heard for a long time still, isn't it? Um, yes, of course, we have her writings. I mean, she saw her most important book in 1994. She described herself that it was uh, created out of the intellectual um, energy of the 1970s, she described, and that was uh, Women in Irish Society by Ireland House. And, you know, I, I, I think of her um, at times, you know, as you said, when, I, when she turned up 
at events or she was in in the midst of, of, of whether she was on a podium um, you know, advocating for, you know, equal rights for women, whether she was advocating for divorce. And that was really important that she came out and, and she pressed ahead with this, the idea that people would have, you know, that they would have an opportunity to be able to get out of difficult and, and, and bad marriages. And this was, she worked with women's groups. She, she, you know, she was a patron of so many. And um, on another side, she was, she was involved in, in protesting at Wood Key. So, so again, she she was somebody who who never um, never dropped her her sense of herself and her her sense of social justice. And she talked about the idea that the Dominicans, you know, um, was another appeal for her with with her own order was that idea that they had this freedom of speech. Finally, Sinead, as part of this tribute, there's there's one opportunity to hear her voice again. Can you can you tell us more about it? I really felt it was important that we, we, we would go with the clip towards the end of her life because she managed to uh, maintain her stance and her fearlessness to the end, even in the last difficult decades when it was more difficult to be uh, in religious life. And here she's, go she's going to talk about um, the, the Ryan report and her reaction to that. And I'd just like to say, as, as, as you know, it's, it's fitting that her voice should, should lead us out of this, this tribute. And thank you very much for um, being, allowing me to, to talk about this marvellous woman who um, I'm privileged to have had in my life. Thank you. How shall I begin? Well, I'd like to begin with something that happened about oh, nearly nine months ago. Uh, I was at a meeting in um, the uh, City Hall and it was in connection with the Dublin City of Literature. And we had had a very good panel on looking at writing, and particularly women's writing. And then at the very end of it, a question was asked from the floor. Would any member of the panel um, care to speak about uh, church-state relationships? You know, and there was an appalled silence. We had to move quickly from literature, you know, to the reality. It was... Um, just after the two reports. So it was interesting because I took the microphone and I just did three small sentences and I only hoped that nobody would want me to expand on them. I said, it's over. They're finished. And we are liberated. I was very shocked by myself, you know, that this was what came from my depths. The voice of the late Dr. Margaret McCartan in 2011 there on the changes brought about by the Ryan and Murphy reports. Well, next this evening, Pope Francis last Saturday signed and published his third encyclical, Fratelli Tutti. The encyclical has the subtitle of On Fraternity and Social Friendship. In it, he states that the COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted the failure of the world to work together during the crisis. The encyclical calls for more human fraternity and solidarity and is a plea to reject wars. Austin Ivory is a UK-based Roman Catholic journalist, author, commentator and biographer of Pope Francis and he joins me now from his home. Austin, welcome. Can you drill down into the details of the encyclical for us? It's, it's a document that's very wide-ranging and really the first chapter is all about the context. So he looks, Pope Francis looks out in the world and he sees 
so much of that progress that was made, particularly after the Second World War, towards building up uh, you know, multilateral institutions and cooperation and alliances, he sees that now uh, we're slipping back from that. So the age, this is the age of, you know, of, of Brexit, of, of nationalism, of populism, and of increasing uh, tr tribal division within society. So people increasingly uh, separated off from each other into groups at war with each other. Uh, and there's a lot in the, in the document about that. So, that, that's the, then, then the key chapter really is the second one, which is about the parable of the, of the Good Samaritan and the way uh, that in discovering the needs and attending to the needs of each other, we overcome this sort of clinging to identity and we discover our, our common identity as sons and daughters of, of a loving God. And then the rest of the encyclical is really how that plays out above all in uh, areas like communication and politics and questions of war and peace. So it, it, there's a definite kind of frame to the encyclical in that sense. He also takes the opportunity, I think, to address the members of his own church and maybe the, the, the senior members of his own church in terms of their attitude towards authority and power. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a there's a strong uh, critique in the document of contemporary politics as being inadequate for the needs of our time. Now, he links this, he illustrates so many of his points by talking about the current COVID crisis, but the encyclical was actually under preparation long before it. But as he sees it, the COVID has revealed the kind of breaches and, and gaps and splits, our inability to cooperate with each other, and the failure of politics, both of the liberal, individualistic, managerial kind, which has dominated uh, Western society, but also this new nascent populism, which in the name of the people, in fact, uses the people and scapegoats others. So he sees those as, 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 an, as antithetical, really to what the people, the people we need right now. So he's calling for a new kind of politics. Uh, and in that, he's calling also for a, a religion which is at the service of building up that trusts of belonging, the uh, bonds of, of belonging and trust uh, among people and in society and in institutions. He sees that really as the great task of the moment. And that the document is really an invitation, particularly to people of faith, but to anybody of goodwill, to kind of stand back from this polarised tribal environment, not be caught up in it, and to be artisans of a new kind of way of being, which is about forging uh, consensus and agreement out of division and conflict, but not being afraid of conflict, but being peacemakers within a context of conflict. Now, historically, the Pope would have stayed away a little bit from politics, but if you're an American Catholic reading this document, you might feel that it was being directed towards you. Yeah, I would understand that. I mean, there's some lines in there which you, you just cannot help thinking at the, this time of, of America, both church and society, both of which deeply paralysed and polarised, uh, but also some of the remarks um, about contemporary politics and the, 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 the blatant kind of lying that happens um, and the, the, the attempt to pit us off against each other. I mean, one cannot but help think of America and particularly of, of Trump. Um, of course, any encyclical, whenever an encyclical comes out, there'll be some election somewhere happening in the world and popes don't 
I don't think time these things is... But I'm sure he was aware, this came out on the Feast of St. Francis of Assisi, October the 4th, but I'm sure he was aware um, that it would be coming out during the election. And I think he would be very happy for people to apply, <laughs> to apply its lessons to that context, as long as it wasn't considered that he was addressing only America, because, of course, so much of what he says there applies to, to all of our nations, not just the states. Um, but no, certainly, it, it, it's an, a document which I think will be remembered for having having possibly the most acute diagnosis of any, of any great thinker or, or, or leader of the, the particular paralysis of America at this time. Now, of course, the release of the document was probably overshadowed a little bit by the uh, sacking of Cardinal Betu. Yes, I was in Rome, actually, just then when that happened. It was very, very dramatic. Uh, I suppose the highest level... Um, sacking, really, one can imagine in the whole church's history of, of a cardinal for reasons of financial impropriety. So Cardinal Angelo Becciu, who um, uh, over, well over a year ago was the number two in the Vatican, number two in the Secretariat of State, which is a very powerful body and therefore really responsible for so many of the, the decisions that were taken about money. Um, there were all sorts of um, accusations at the time I'm talking about a couple of years back, particularly uh, a scandal involving a property deal in London. Uh, cardinal Betchou was, well, Betchou, not then a cardinal, was made a cardinal and put in charge of another department in Rome in charge of making saints. Uh, and magistrates, Vatican magistrates, have been investigating his record over the last uh, 80 months or so and gave Pope Francis a report which we have not seen but which was so devastating that it said that Pope Francis had no choice but to ask for him uh, to resign his post at the head of the saint-making body. Uh, he remains a cardinal but he's lost his privileges as a cardinal which means that he is now liable to prosecution and I understand that that case uh, is now being prepared against him. And Austin, what are we to make of the return of Cardinal Powell to the Vatican? Well, Cardinal Powell uh, happened to be <laughs> coming back more or less uh, at the same time as all this was happening, just a few days later, uh, and people drew a big connection between the two. In fact, he had booked his ticket some time ago, uh, and he's coming really to, to clear up his, his apartment and his effects. Uh, he's going to be around in Rome for a while. We'll wait to see whether Cardinal Pell, um, you know, starts giving interviews and sounding off and so on. He's not coming back to any kind of position of responsibility in Rome. He will be going back to... Sydney, as I understand, to retire there, um, but will be. He, he's a he's a big figure, Pell, and he's not short of uh, opinions, particularly on financial matters, because he was in charge of finances, of course, for for some years. Um, and uh, so, I'm sure it won't be long before we're hearing from him. You were in Rome recently. I'm wondering uh, your observations of the Italian media and their reports on the 1.1 million euros that was sent from the Secretariat, uh, allegedly to uh, witnesses uh, in Australia. Yeah, I mean, there's there's literally no evidence of that. Uh, the, the, I mean, there's sorry, there's evidence that the money was sent by Betu to Australia, but there has been no evidence whatsoever that that money was used in any way to influence the uh, trial against Cardinal Pell. And I'm personally deeply sceptical. I mean, it's 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 a Dan Brown conspiracy. You know, it it, it would require <laughs> such sort of sophistication and such a, a, a lack of uh, of any morality. I just find it very hard to hard to believe. And so until there's any kind 
kind of evidence, um, I, I'm going to assume uh, that it's not true. And I think there are followers, particularly admirers of Cardinal Pell, who would like to believe it because it fits so well. You know, Cardinal Pell offends people like Bechu, who then arrange for him to be, you know, tried in, in, in Australia on abuse charges. But it's really just too neat to be true, uh, in my view. Austin Ivory, thank you for joining us on the programme this evening. Thank you. Finally this evening, Stephen Gillen was born in England, spent some of his early childhood in Belfast during the Troubles and ultimately found himself held as a Category A prisoner in many of the UK's jails. Described as a reformed career criminal, Stephen has recorded his journey from the underworld to Peace Ambassador in his book The Monkey Puzzle Tree, which has been nominated in the non-fiction category of the People's Book Prize for 2020. He credits his Irish roots with setting him on the path to redemption, and he joins me now. Stephen, you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. Reading about you, there are two distinct lives. One where you are now, where you have a great deal of confidence and indeed success. The other, for the want of a better word, chaotic at times. Bring me back to your early life in Belfast as a child. It seemed that once you were away from the city streets and the troubles, you felt safe. Absolutely. I mean, the first thing was... Many people say, ah, oh, you know, this change, this epiphany, what was it? But I say, no, actually, look, you know, uh, Irish people, my my family then, I was, I, was, I was brought up by my aunts and my uncles, really are the salt of the earth. They were very religious people, very, very good people, very kind people, you know, and they put all of that in me. The instance where you saw a young boy shot, uh, is uh, it's a startling read when, when you come across it. And I'm curious to the extent that it's still with you uh, and maybe even uh, was fundamental uh, to your life. As it says in the book, I mean, I see, I see someone get shot in front of me in a riot, you know, and they died in front of me. I was hiding under a hedge. I was, I was seven years old. They died crying, crying for their mother. The truth is I didn't I didn't speak of that, you know. I held that, you know, I held that in me. I didn't speak of that until only six years ago, I suppose, in any in any depth, Michael. And you know, it really has been a a progression um for me and that was part of it. Let, let's see if we can lay down a little bit more chronology then to it and, and a timeline because uh, you mentioned that you were in Northern Ireland um and you were there, but you're the, the role of your mother and how you found yourself in the UK? Um, in them days, it was a very hard time uh, in Ireland, you know, in the early 70s because of the political situation then. And um, people had to deal with a lot then, you know, especially in the north. And my mother, she she left me there with with my aunts and uncles, and she come to she come to England to to try and make a life uh, a life for us. So this was this was the reason that I was there. But so many years passed, you know. Unfortunately, my surrogate mother, Madge, she died of cancer. So this was this is very traumatic, and and it was thought then by the men of the family, okay, Stephen needs to go back uh, across the water to England and make a life there when did it go from petty crime to major crime quite early michael this is the truth um in in east london i had you know i'd grown up really really fast in them days you know i was a member of a gang and i kind of went through that way i was 
really adrift, you know, because I'd been cast adrift from, from, from an early age and this continued. So, you know, we're looking for role models. We're looking for uh, other family in some kind of weird way, even though we don't know that and uh, protection and belonging, all of this stuff. But, you know, I, uh, you know, I got involved in organised crime um, early from that. I progressed. Um, you know, and it was serious stuff. Um, you know, it was firearms, you know, it was stuff like that. It was, um, it was armed robbery, uh, security vans, um, hijacking all of this stuff. It really, it really was the serious stuff. And, you know, because I was around kind of a surrogate family of very serious high-level criminal criminal family of the time in the East End and um, we got arrested it was an ambush and we was arrested and it was very very serious stuff and um, that's what happened and then I went to prison because of that this was why I was made I was made a category A and I was I was I was kept at that at that security level it's not until around page 289 that God appears uh, by form of a prayer, Millennium New Year's Eve, and you say a prayer to God. Where had God been up to that? The truth is I was always very, very spiritual. You know, we was Roman Catholic family. We was always up the road to Mass every Sunday. You know, it was a big thing. You know, it was the way it always was in Ireland. What happened on Millennium New Year's Eve? Were you were you just tired of everything? I had, you know, you're talking about such a violent environment. You're talking about such a emotionally painful, punishing life. So much trauma. You know, you're talking about all of that stuff. And and I, as I said about, I had enough courage, thankfully, an opportunity to find my way back to myself. This was certainly the start of it, because the truth is, you know, although I made these choices, I done these things, I when I I I I played this role, you know, if you want to call it, you know, the best that you can play it. I was never actually that person, Michael. You know, my heart qualities were always good. You describe a, a spiritual moment, a, a visitation that changed your life. This was very profound. It really was, and I, I was, I was in a high security prison. I was only about four years into the sentence, and I was really at my wit's end, Michael. I, I could not see the future. I could not see anything. It was the darkest, most miserable place I'd ever been, and it was a, it was a desperate, a desperate time for me. And I was in the cell, and it was late at night. It must have been two o'clock, and. You build yourself up into this desperation. It doesn't just happen. This is a build-up over uh, days and weeks and months. But I was really, you know, I was really in the worst position of desperation at this point. And then I suddenly felt it was the cell was dark. It wasn't like a bright light or anything, but there was kind of a light, a softening of of and and then there was just such an unbelievable feeling of comfort support and love that just completely superimposed and washed over me in such a profound way that it was just not a trick of the mind. And I that was a very, very pivotal, pivotal time for me. Yeah. I thought I had the feeling that it was so much love and comfort that it was, 
my Aunt Madge, who had died, who was my surrogate mother, who was just, just letting me know, look, there's a lot more to come. It's all right. You will get through this. This was the, this was the central message. Stephen Gillan, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith tonight. Oh, thank you, Michael. Thank you. Stephen's book, The Monkey Puzzle Tree, is published by Filament Publishing and is available now. And that's our programme for this week. On sound this evening was Mark Dwyer, our broadcast coordinator is Charlotte Holland, our producer is Sheila O'Callaghan. From them and from me, Michael Cummins, until next week, goodbye. <laughs>